นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสัง
question it, what we mean by it, and, and to see how they relate together. You notice when I use, when I talk about this quality of faith, I qualify it with either trust or confidence, understanding that for many people the, the word faith is being used in a way whereby it doesn't conjure up a, a good feeling. In fact, it conjures up a lot of bad feelings. The Pali word, the word the Buddha referred to, is, is, as we understand it, is the word sadha. And it is variously translated in, as trust, as confidence, and also as faith. And So, myself, I've, I've come to, I've reconciled my, my own personal grievances over the misuse of the word faith and, and I, I, I fall into using it quite comfortably however I understand for some people that that may be not the case and so I suggest that you all look into it yourself and, and find your own word for it But and that's the case with all these words that we use in, in spiritual discipline and spiritual practice it's, it's important that we feel for the word that makes sense for us if the word faith just keeps bringing up sense of betrayal and disappointment and alienation and, or even abuse, which sometimes happens, and then we can find another word. Because this is a profoundly important quality. If, if it wasn't for faith, we wouldn't get started. If, we're, if it wasn't for trust, if it wasn't for confidence we wouldn't get started on this path but it's because we have we trust in something we trust in in truth we trust in a possibility we trust in the existence of a potential reality and we're inspired and energized by that trust and it's very different from from belief mm. Mm. People don't always stop to inquire for themselves and see the difference between believing in something and trusting in something or having faith. And in some of the theistic religions of the world, faith is of itself. That's the end point. All you have to do is have faith. And as it's put, but when you examine what faith means, it's really closer to how I understand and use the word anyway, belief. It's because one believes something to be true. And it can be because you uh, you hear an inspiring presentation on something. And it doesn't have to be religious. You can have you can believe in political or ecological ideals and and you can have uh, enthusiasm whipped up by charismatic speakers. Personally, I, I quite like to study these phenomena. I like watching political broadcasters on the television and religious evangelists um, up to a certain point. <laughs> There's some that I find a bit much. But up to a certain point, I find it interesting to watch, to listen to the tone of the voice and to watch the way people are affected by it and I, I can remember in my own my own childhood early life and I was I was reared in the Baptist Presbyterian traditions and 
and I was subjected to a lot of the Billy Graham crusades that was that whipped through New Zealand like a bushfire and there'd be these rallies that people would go and wave torches that were dipped in methylated spirits and these flaming torches you'd wave in the air and say you were saved and and people would behave in this extraordinary manner and uh, the effect of a charismatic speaker can have this uh, people would call it a transforming effect what what I've come to recognize that it's there is something takes place in consciousness but it's perhaps better described as an alteration of consciousness rather than a transformation and blind faith or rigid belief can bring about very dramatic alterations of consciousness just the same way as, as uh, drugs can and very very uh, similar actually one can take eat some mescaline or s- something and, and have a, uh, a major alteration experience where you you see that love is all there is and you can uh, be absolutely convinced while you're under the influence of, of mescaline that 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 your life has been completely transformed. However, when the drug wears off and you wake up, and it's a very different experience. And so it's true that consciousness was altered, but it's not true that one's being has been transformed. The alteration may be significant, positive or negative, um, as with the case of uh, of even inspiration, even our initial inspiration and, and naive faith with Buddhism. Mm. We can become a little uh, over-enthusiastic in the beginning about it and, and grasp it too f- firmly, thinking that we've solved all our problems, this is it, we've got it and I'm never going to waver from the path. And I've seen people come to the monastery here and really standing up straight, bright-eyed and confident and sort of strut around the monastery. And I remember one chap arriving here and then he'd written these glowing letters before he came here. And he was so sure this was, this was it. And he arrived here and kind of strutted around the monastery, came into the Dhamma Hall, kind of checked it out and said, oh, this isn't bad. And, and everybody else was just getting on with their business. And he'd be out there doing his walking meditation up and down, up and down, very serious about his meditation, doing this slow walking technique. Everybody else was just getting around saying, oh yeah, we've got a new guy. <laughs> and uh, Nobody says anything, but everybody knows that uh, it's only a matter of months until that initial enthusiasm is not necessarily thrown out, but it's certainly replaced with a different relationship to practice. And so that initial enthusiasm can be in fact intoxicating. And from the Buddhist perspective, we don't see that as wrong, we just see that as initial. And with mindfulness, we learn, oh, well, that kind of confidence is impermanent. That's not unshakable confidence. That's not unshakable faith. That's not unshakable trust. That's still very shakable, very initial, and understood, and it's functional. So contemplating faith trust, confidence and belief and seeing how these things work and seeing how tempting it is to to feed on this but also seeing the consequence of it. You know, look what happens when as is promoted in many of the theistic religions in the world uh, 
as I said, faith or belief is the end product. That's it. All you have to do. And when when you have a conversation with some of the people who believe adamantly that this is it and then this is the way, there's a presentation of their conviction as if it's actually knowledge. And I, I it still it still trips me up sometimes when I listen to or still surprises me when I listen to people saying that they know about something. But when you when you actually question them and if you go far enough in the conversation you find it's not real knowledge, it's not unshakable knowledge, but it's a very rigidly held belief which because of the nature of the holding to the belief it gives a sense of conviction. Maybe we've seen this in ourselves that if we hold firmly enough to a, a belief, if we attach to a belief, it's like the heart contracts and our heart energy becomes intensified and that potentized heart energy actually gives us a sense of a rush. There's a real rush that comes with firmly held beliefs and this conviction actually parades itself as knowledge. There's a, certain, there's a sense of, of absolute certainty, unshakable certainty, and then people will even kill uh, for the sake of this certainty. I've never myself been quite convinced that I believe in anything that's worth killing for, um, but I've, I have witnessed in others, unfortunately, that degree of passion that can delude the mind into thinking that uh, it's knowledge. What the Buddha encouraged us to consider is to see that knowledge is possible and to have confidence that it's possible, to trust in this possibility and that it can be cultivated. And so like, for instance, we, we have confidence that the Buddha did have knowledge, the Buddha knew, the Buddha actually saw the truth of this existence, saw the truth that all phenomena is impermanent, saw the truth of the nature of suffering, that suffering is a conditioned reality that if we cultivate the mind, the heart, our whole being in an appropriate way, we can actually, as human beings, go beyond this. And he saw this, he knew the way for himself in an unshakable nature, so that it doesn't matter whatever anybody did to him, try to kill him, humiliate him, got old, got sick, got betrayed by all sorts of people, and, but that knowledge was unshakable. There was no hint of grief, sorrow, lamentation or despair in the Buddha's heart and mind from the time of his enlightenment onwards, from the time of that knowledge, from the time of that direct knowledge, there wasn't any uh, suffering in the Buddha's mind. Now we have confidence in that possibility. We don't know it. Yeah. We have confidence and, and the faith that we have in it, or the trust or the confidence we have in that possibility, we're encouraged to be mindful of. This is not knowledge, but we trust that it's possible. We trust the Buddha was enlightened. And so when we see how we consider how trust and wisdom relate in our minds, we can see that because we trust that something's possible, it gives us enthusiasm, gives us inspiration and sustains us. We can cultivate this faith, this confidence, 
this heart of inspiration, sustain it, value it in the various ways that that's, that's encouraged on the path of realization. Even if we ourselves haven't realized yet, we have confidence. And so that when we become caught up in encounter our experience of limitation, it's not knowledge that sustains us. It's not necessarily naive hope that sustains us. There can be hope, but even our hope we relate to with mindfulness. We're not blindly hoping, we're not blindly believing, <clears throat> because we're always encouraged to trust the principle of impermanence, so we don't know. But we trust, and just as in a relationship, you know, you have a friendship with somebody you've gotten to know over years, and and then something happens in that friendship and that relationship where trust is damaged or threatened. Or, or the sense of well-being in that relationship is damaged. Now, if it's really, really severe, trust might be damaged so much that the relationship can't be repaired. However, sometimes it's just a result of a misunderstanding or a bad mood or, or something, or when one partner maybe gets sick and you get really, really sick and you lose all your energy and become depressed and and the other partner might be feeling completely fed up with it. My goodness, why don't they just snap out of it? Why can't they get their act together? But they don't say it. They don't come out and say that because the sick one is really miserable and having a really bad time. And, and because there's faith or confidence or trust in the relationship, there's a willingness and an ability to endure the, uh, the trough or the difficult period of difficulty in the relationship. Likewise in our practice, in our, in our effort to cultivate wisdom, in our effort to arrive at insight, penetrating insight that actually transforms our being, doesn't just momentarily alter things, but actually removes doubt once and for all, and so the heart is unshakably established on the path. In our effort to cultivate this kind of uh, wisdom, this kind of clear seeing, as I'm saying, inevitably we're going to encounter experience of limitation. And we can be really shaken. We can really think, my goodness, you know, after all this years of practice, I, you can sometimes, it's like you've done nothing. Like nothing. All these years I've just been messing around. I've been kidding myself. I hear this time and time again from people who go through this experience and um, I've been through it myself and to some degree somehow I've always had very strong faith and so I've never felt sufficiently threatened to, to give up my practice but I know for some people their faith is, is much more severely shaken and, and they really get consumed by doubts about the point of, of carrying on in practice and and I've heard it so many times, I'm, I'm tempted to think, oh, a little pass. But I know when you're stuck in these mind states, like, for instance, doubt. When you're really stuck in doubt, you're really stuck in doubt, the experience of limitation, it feels like it's permanent. And if we don't have a good connection with faith or with trust in the possibility of freedom, then we can get 
stuck in that swamp and maybe not come out of it. Well, like all the five hindrances that we're, we're encouraged to investigate, to become familiar with, all of them are the same. The first hindrance of desire, it's, you know, probably all of us can think of occasions where we've been fooled by desire. It happens a lot for monks anyway, I'm sure everybody goes through it, but living this boring existence as we do in this dull and uninteresting place, you might think it's lovely here, you come up here and oh, nice shrine room, nice lilies and nice people, but day in, day out, boring people. <laughs> well, actually, all very nice people, and there's nothing wrong with them. But, you know, the things that one grows up with are, you know, a lot more interesting. Than, and and certainly in the early years of practice, you know, monks go to meditate, and as soon as you start to meditate, you just hear music. I don't know what people hear in their minds these days, but for me it was just you know, like Santana, or Jethro Tull. And <laughs> Some of you are smiling. I you recognise these old geriatric bands. That <laughs> Although actually I think Santana's still around. And he's timeless and mm, grateful dead. And in meditation you can become obsessed. Mm. You know, I know people who you know they walk and they think about is how to dial up a pizza. <laughs> You know, I can become obsessed with <laughs> dial a pizza. You know, even even remember the number they used to dial to get their pizza from their favourite place, or, or all the friends that they could ring up and just go out, you know, do a little, a little boogie. Yeah. The mind can become obsessed with it, and when you're caught in it, the nature of it, it feels like it's always going to be this way, and it and it feels like when it's last, it feels like it's really worth following. That's its nature. It's enticing, it's seducing, it pulls us forward. And, and we think, oh, if I just go into this, it's going to feel so good. I've spoken a number of times about my obsession with building tree houses. When I first started meditating, I couldn't get these images of tree houses out of my mind. I lived in a beautiful forest in a beautiful part of Australia with all these beautiful people. And. I had this wonderful blue gum tree right in front of my little shelter that I had built for myself that I was living in and I know that I could have built the most amazing tree house up there and every time I went to meditate there's nothing I seemed to do that would change my mind I just get pulled into this obsession and it was lust you know, just the beauty of it the pleasure of it and the feeling of the space and the view and being able to invite my friends around for chamomile tea and so on. <laughs> mm. Or anger, the second of the hindrances. When you're caught in it, it feels so right to hate whatever the object of your anger is. You just mm. they were they're a really bad person. That that person's really bad. They deserve to be destroyed. Just damaged, hurt. I feel completely justified in hurting when the mind is possessed with, with anger, with ill will, with rage. And you can't see anything good in somebody, you know, when, or even in the world, if you get sufficiently possessed with it, you can't see any good in anything. And if you hate yourself, if you've been sufficiently programmed, 
in a sufficiently perverse way that one can come be possessed by self-hatred and and even though everybody else might see all sorts of good qualities in you they may actually be there as potentials obvious to everybody else if you become possessed by the state of ill will you have that particular kind of mind state and you hate yourself there's nothing that anybody's going to say is going to make any difference you just can't see it you really believe that you're worthy of total loathing so we're encouraged to study these five hindrances you know, lustful desire, ill will sleepiness restlessness and worry and doubt so as to be prepared when they arise and not to get taken over by them because what happens when they enter the mind it's like they colour the mind we have these expressions seeing life through tinted what is it, through tinted glasses or something rather through rose tinted glasses or something like that you know everything it's like when you fall in love you know you can be I don't know probably all of us have some stage in our life fallen in love with somebody and when you're in love with somebody you can't imagine it being otherwise if you've really fallen in love it's going to be this way forever I can never even if you, I can remember falling in love and so I could never imagine there anything unpleasant about this person and somebody else starts trying to point out their limitations and you say well they're obviously confused <laughs> they obviously don't know what I know I know this person is, an, is absolutely eternally wonderful well you know th- by this stage of life most of us have woken up to the, that, that particular delusion but you know what it, it's like when you're caught in it all our perceptions are, are coloured by that particular mindset so we're encouraged to consider these five hindrances get to know them and prepare ourselves for when they arise we don't lose faith we don't lose confidence because if we lose contact with our trust that it's possible to be free from these mind states then there is the risk the real risk the the real possibility we'll become possessed by them and this does happen and so that's uh, why we're also encouraged to progress slowly and carefully, not being too much of a rush, and not to forget how important that quality of trust is. To really hold it up, make something of it, consider it for ourselves, not just believe what what I'm saying or what books say or or what we feel. You know, when you've got a lot of faith, as I was saying before, you can feel really confident and and think it's going to last forever, but that's not enough. We're encouraged to use our wisdom faculty to investigate faith, to investigate trust, and see how does it work, what conditions it, what sustains it, what obscures it. Mm. Like sometimes if you do too much and get too busy, get exhausted, mm. body chemistry changes and and that can be enough to actually lose perspective. So if we see that, well then it's wise and skillful to you know, don't let ourselves get too, too busy. Simplify life. Slow down a bit. Also one can make a theme of it. I, I sometimes encourage people to meditate on the word trusting. To actually hold the word in mind and heart and and you can associate it with breathing, breathing in, trust, breathing out, in, trusting. 
trusting and I, I know people have used this I've used this as a like a mantra if you like in meditation when when nothing else when everything else seems to have failed us holding that so that it sustains us with the intuition with the recognition that there is a way there is a possibility this is actually impermanent whatever it is that we're experiencing is impermanent it will change despite the apparent nature of it so we've heard the uh, teachings on Dhamma the teachings on truth and and sufficient to give rise to the confidence the trust that a path of practice is worth the effort of embarking on we do believe it's possible but we don't grasp at that belief as an end in itself yes we believe it's possible and that belief is important to us if somebody asks us you know, what, do, what do Buddhists believe in you can answer on the basis of that I'm not going to tell you what to believe in I think it's important that we find our own feeling for how we should respond to that question there isn't a pat answer to that question if people say what do Buddhists believe in well there isn't a formula that uh, if you you know you come to Han Buddhist monastery then you've got to believe in this but rather through our own consideration of this then hopefully we'll arrive at a feeling that we can meet with words and say well yeah this is what this is what I believe in this is what I believe in and and to be able to say that actually is can be a great um, a great gift to somebody if we've carefully considered faith considered doubt considered the faculty of wisdom how these faculties all work together seen how mindfulness balances these things and then arrived at our own feeling of conviction and our own words for it well then somebody asks us and say well what do you believe in or what do Buddhists believe in I trust that actually what we come back with will be something really meaningful it won't just be something that comes from our head it won't just be repeating something somebody else tells us but it'll be something that's got real energy in it heart energy in it so thank you very much this evening for your attention Namayang Namavarakatasa Dukarang Ramasi Sarang